Welcome to Politics and Right. Today, we're going to have a great show for you. Today, we are going to speak to a state senator, and we're going to have a whole lot of outtakes from uh, several of the clips that I, that I got that I think you're going to enjoy. They follow several themes. So hang in there, take a look, uh, have a cup of coffee, enjoy. It's going to be great. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Today, we are honored to have South Carolina State Senator John L. Scott Jr. He is responsible for the creation and execution of the South Carolina Institute of Innovation and Information with, uh, with the directive to help grow student enrollment at HBCUs and to foster classroom to job enrollment with students. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And schools and bid the business community. Welcome to Politics Done Right. Senor John L. Scott. Junior, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, and thank you for inviting me to be on your show today. And it's a it's an honor and a joy um, um, to be with you and to be with your listening audience. Well, let me tell you what's important. Uh, when 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 I was um, informed about this project that you are on, you know, first of all, let, let let me tell you, there are a whole lot of politicians out there, Senator, that they're politicians, and they're not actually doing something that's material to their respective communities. And when I saw this come across, it was, wow, here's a guy looking at his community and saying, I can make a difference, not only for my community, but for, for the community at large and my state. So I think that that's a great attribute in the foundation of what you've created. Well, let me give you a little more detail of the foundation. Um, I came to the General Assembly uh, in the House where I served for 18 years back in 1990. I began to work on what's called a state-run lottery. And by 2001, we had a state-run lottery here. A lot of years, a lot of work. And so I take a lot of credit for that work. Since then, about 50,000 young people have been able to get scholarships um, to be able to go to, to go to school. Along with funds have been, been, been able to be given to um, HBCUs and other schools to do a lot of different things. We, um, I spent another 20 years bringing this state, and finally this past year, we got early voting um, and as another tool to be able to get our folk to turn out and come to work. Broadband here was kind of stuck in the ditch, couldn't make it work. Negotiated with the players um, last year. Uh, we finally got that out. Um, now we've operated with some $450 million now trying to put that infrastructure in place. Now comes the opportunity and work with HBCUs and, and many years of pushing diversity among these larger um, majority schools and making sure African-Americans receive uh, what they needed to in these schools and trying to keep our best and brightest at home. Which leads me to the next, next part. How do I maintain the culture diversity at HBCUs, provide them the opportunity for corpus to be able to be part of that growing um, growing population on these colleges and have these young people ready to be able to go into corporate world and survive the first two years, which is normally called a corporate politics. Let me ask you this. Why, why are historically black colleges and universities very important? Uh, and why is it so necessary to grow enrollment in order for what you want to attain? Well, as you, I am a graduate person from HBCU, Sacramento State University class of 1975, long time ago. <laughs> um, most of my family members, with the exception of one sister who did not attend HBCU out of family of six. So we're HBCU family. My mom's sisters uh, went to HBCU. So my son was a third generation HBCU graduate. And that says a lot. That says I'm all the way back to the 50s and 60s when we're not accepted in the larger institutions and in many cases, the nurturing to be able to get a young person to be able to survive higher education, um, staying long enough to be able to, to graduate, move on to a professional career, which says there's still so many young people out there which are first generation children or kids, 
just going to a four-year institution. We must have those schools in place to be able to nurture that child um, and so that child can get through that process. To take a young person who comes out of a county with a population, I'll use Allendale as an example, less than 9,000, or Bamberg less than about 15,000 and send them to a school um, that the school size of 30,000. So that child is just kind of lost in the mix. But to be able to, to, be able to nurture that child and get that child to um, utilize those tools they've learned in high school and also um, get that brain set that's, that's in that mind or that mindset that brain has to offer so that brain continues to, to develop and offer a product in many cases you would not find simply because of what has happened during the course of their life. As always, you don't know my story. And that's what makes the HBCUs so important to me. And also in looking at what the corporates are doing, they're building new corporations here, but they're building around these HBCUs in the black community. Well, we gotta stop that. I always think that age old excuse, we don't have folk who are ready to go on the job. So use the technical kids to work on the floors and others, but I'm talking in the boardroom and in the management level. And this is what I was designed for. The South Carolina Institute of Information uh, uh, Institute to be able to make sure these young people get a first hand on to the job and a very good detailed look at what's going on in corporate and become a part of corporate world. The claim is that there's a whole lot of there's a shortage of skilled workers right now, and I and I foresee that that is one of your impetus for uh, for putting out there that an institute like what you're creating here can make a difference. How exactly then are you going to promote bringing more folks into your, uh, in your, in the HBCU systems to make a difference and ensure that uh, it, it works on, the, on the, the necessities, we'll say, of those young people to get the skills they need to execute in the larger business force? You really won't know what they need unless those who have the needs join you as a partner. And that's what it's all about, having those partnerships, getting those um, getting those companies to come and work with the college and, and universities. So first thing we did was to create an e-school and institute with a director. And that director along with the president and the staff and, and, the, and the board, not necessarily the board of trustees, but the institute board will be reaching out to corporates, bringing them in training seminars and creating partnership agreements uh, to uh, make those kind of decisions. What are the things that corporations need? What do we have to offer? How can we partner together? How can we get these young people, not just for summer internships, but also for exchange programs and others that may be out there, along with corporates providing scholarship funds also for some of these young people. Also utilizing the faculty and staff that train and teach these young people on the campus, making them a part of the, of the Institute um, we just got a grant to do some uh, to do um, some work on um, looking at small businesses. And I'll use Sacramento State College as a very good example. Beck, business, environment, communication, transportation. And the question is, with small business, what are those pitfalls that prohibit them from being able to go after more business? Um, um, what can be done better for small business? Which is a perfect, perfect question since small business spend, and I'm a small business owner of two companies. So we spend most of our time just trying to keep the doors open. And so is, is what are we missing um, in terms of advertisement, in terms of getting other folk to work with us and to go after those, um, those contracts and um, those kinds of service things that we can get to, to add to the bottom line. Well, that's what this research problem will do. So the challenge is who will be the stockholders um, in terms of helping us um, do that research, creating the think tank, also young people being involved in that process. And the young people right now are the ones who pay for the services and, um, and the, the companies provide the services. So where's that, uh, that, that, that disconnect that we can connect them back together and make it work a lot smoother. And so that's what that particular project will be, will be doing. Um, we had the undersecretary here about two weeks ago and looking at how some of the HBCUs can do some joint projects together. We've had other companies here talking about cybersecurity and a couple of, about three of the, of the um, colleges, or three of the institutes do, do cybersecurity. 
uh, um, over in Sumter, Morris College, NIC, um, N-I-T-S, uh, um, Network Information Technology and Security. How can they work together with Bowie's College who's doing rural development um, to make that work? Benedict College, which is also doing cybersecurity. So let's take a look at it professionally with um, the faculty and staff in many cases done had many years of research. That's who we can bring in as partners too as we move uh, not only just in the business community, but also in the military community and providing these young people an opportunity to really see uh, what's actually going on, not just what the textbooks, textbook actually says. Now, I see the interface between the business community and your institute, but there's, there's one caveat that I, I, I want to know how you're handling. We all know many times that uh, institutions, uh, the, the, the high school, elementary, and middle school institution that serves uh, people of color, many won't want to accept it, but they are usually substandardly funded. And, and as such, many of the students out of these, uh, these schools, are, uh, their STEM qualifications are not, uh, are not up to par, et cetera. Is there some interface that you're making with, uh, you have the above interface with those in the primary, secondary schools that probably prep them better so that when they get to you in an HBCU, they're more easily trained? I'll give you a, a very, very good question. Um, I'll give you an example, Tana, uh, the Institute of Teaching and Nursing at Claflin University. Um, they're already um, down to the middle school and high school level, even in the summer months, offer summer internship programs or summer learning programs on their campus and being able to attract young people, which means that they're already in the high schools and middle school telling these young people, if you want to be teacher, be a teacher, or be a nurse, or be in the health community. These are some of the STEM classes you got to take and you got to do well in it in order to be able to qualify, which what, what that does is I'm branding those young people mind. This is a career I want to go in. This is why I worked hard in those areas to take those STEM um, classes so that when I do get to college, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to fail. The other part, those young people who come from the high schools and the middle school become ambassadors going back to the schools, mm, helping exactly. to recruit young people who want to go in it. And you'll find that'll be true in the business community. Normally um, in the high school, they may teach you some type of bookkeeping or others, um, but the colleges then can also, in its recruitment and also working with the students, um, be able to, to demonstrate to them that there's a larger field out there in business other than just bookkeeping. And so they're, they're, they're researching that. I mentioned Mars. Mars is also doing the same thing with his cybersecurity. It's already in, in the high school and the middle school, um, talking to young people and recruiting young people who may be interested in going to, into the field of technology and cybersecurity. But I think the big ticket is these colleges and universities, um, given the funding that we've given them, HEAP funding, higher education, higher education enhancement improvement program money, they've been getting since 2003. And we start giving them more money also give them the flexibility to train or retrain staff and faculty. And so there's a, there's a great possibility of exchange between a corporation where you send one of yours over and we'll send ours over. So our faculty and staff get a real hands-on to what's actually going on in the corporation. And so when they come back, it makes it a lot easier for them to be able to communicate with these students as well. What this corporation actually expect of you if you're going to, if you're going to work with them or you can do some internship program. Also to be able to bring on their campus some of the best and brightest in the world, to be able to have workshops and have an exchange of town hall meetings, exchange of information, be involved in their institute. And so it's, it's open. Uh, the institutes have a broad um, uh, space that they can, they can uh, bring in and, and do a lot of different things. They don't have to do what they have not been do doing in the past. And they, this is what Triple I is there, the technical systems on. We know that colleges and universities are there to teach young people. They don't have the time to go after grant funding and other private dollars. Uh, we find the independent colleges have to keep the doors open. But I'm talking about deep grant funding where we can partner with other schools and bring more money in. 
I know if I'm a school that has 1,500 kids and I'm partnering with all seven HBCUs, when I'm talking about 10, 12,000 young people coming in, that's, that's a game changer because you can write a grant big enough to utilize faculty and staff along with the different institutes to be able to get it done. And it's young people being a part of it. And so they have hands on in terms of what needs to be done to make it work. Now, one of the tenets of uh, uh, South Carolina AAA is um, the, the opportunity to bring companies uh, seeking uh, to diversify and, 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 and bring some sort of social justice to their agency. With the Supreme Court ruling pretty soon against affirmative action, do you think uh, more of these companies will keep that in their in their repertoire, or do you think they're going to go back to the modus operandi pre-affirmative action? I think with or without that tool, I don't think you're going to find companies going in the opposite direction. You got to remember, and I'll use South Carolina as an example, we're 26% of the population here. Everybody's fighting to get that business. It's just a good business decision to be able to do it. And if you're going to have shops and operations and you want to attract some of the best and brightest minds, and believe it or not, best and brightest minds don't come based on what color you are. It comes on where your brain you, is. You and, I, you and I know that. Now, there is a force in this country trying to go beyond that. That's, that's what I'm wondering if that has been taken into account as well, we you saw, plan this. Yeah, we saw the midterms election take care of that. One of the things that and I'll, I'll credit myself for the 20-some-odd years that I, the 30 some odd years I've been here and pushing diversity along, along uh, uh, among the large colleges and universities. There was a little pushback at one point um, with uh, public safety, um, I'm sorry, the, uh, yeah, Department of Public Safety and also um, those who uh, department, uh, those who build our, our streets and roads. But now they now understand the importance of uh, diversity and how important it is to be able to have that relationship and be able to communicate. One of the things that I do is that I invite these people to come and meet these folk in the community. Let them answer those problems, especially why, why um, potholes in the roads or why my street hadn't been, been paved or the interstate hadn't been fixed or something of that nature. And so it's up to them to figure out how to, how to close that communication gap. And one thing that's never gonna go away again it is that the level of education where we are now. The other part, if you look across this country, Democratic Party makes up about 34%, Republican Party makes up about 35%, but the independent group makes up 31%. And that's that group that doesn't look at a lot of color. It looks at rather not, you're meeting my needs and can you address my concerns? And so I don't wanna hear that you don't have a white person or black person doing, I wanna know why you can't get done. So now people are going after the best and brightest they can bring in their company and folk who will stay with them, those folk are homegrown. Excellent, um, last question is, uh, well, second to last question. Um, you're doing this in South Carolina, but I think right. as an, I think you present an example that not just adjacent states, but other states can see uh, what the performance what, uh, how that can actually help not only black students, but the whole community as a whole. Right, and I, you know, and I've got a chance to communicate all across this country on different programs and show on shows all the way to California and uh, many, many, many states and will continue to do that. Um, one of the parts I did not mention is we do have a foundation that foundation is made up of the corporate members. Um, and those corporate members come from all across the country. And so we get a whole different kind of exchange of information, behavior, and what corporations are, are seeking to have. I think it's 104 HBCUs. Once we finish the South Carolina program, and we're probably good six to eight months away from just tidying up all of the other smart pieces, I'll begin to move across the country and share with the other HBCUs um, um, what's out there and what we can do to help. Well, uh, Senator, what this is always my last question. So if you've seen my interviews, you know this is the last question. What would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? 
I think he did a very good job of asking the, the detailed questions, the tough questions, the questions that um, provide information and begin to make people think and not just use, well, we can't do that as an excuse and begin to look at what we can do in working together as partners. South Carolina State Senator John L. Scott Jr., thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you so much for inviting me. Adam Kinsinger didn't miss a beat when asked, is Donald Trump guilty? Do you think he should be convicted? Do you think he's committed a crime? Of course he has. Let's listen to what he has to say, and then let's take it on the other side. Let's start with the work that you've been doing over the past almost two years, the January 6th committee. It's over, and it's now in the hands of the Justice Department. Do you think that President Trump ultimately will be charged for crime? Look, I mean— when I got into this, when we started this process, I didn't know, you know, I'm not a lawyer, not a Justice Department guy, didn't necessarily know, is he guilty of a crime or not? Obviously, what he did from a presidential perspective, from an oath perspective is a problem. As we've gotten into this, I look and I'm like, yeah, if, if this is not a crime, I don't know what is. If, if a president can incite an insurrection and not be held accountable, then really there's no limit to what a president can do or can't do. And so, yeah, I do, I do think... Ultimately, when we get to where we're going to go, I think the Justice Department will do the right thing. I think he will be charged. And I frankly think he should be. I mean, everything we've uncovered from what he did with the Justice Department to everything leading up to January 6th to on January 6th, sitting there for 180 minutes and watching this occur in the hope that maybe, just maybe, that last attempt to stay in power will work. So he should be charged and convicted. That's so. That's my personal opinion. It's not from a uh, from Based a lawyer. Based on the evidence that you've been collecting. Yes, and it appears like I look at that and I go, if he is not guilty of a crime, then I, I frankly fear for the future of this country because now every future president can say, "Hey, here's the bar," and the bar is do everything you can to stay in power. Uh, there you go. I think uh, Donald Trump, most of us for a long time, had the belief that just maybe Donald Trump was not going to face, uh, face the bill. Well, I am starting to get as, as more and more comes out, as more and more come out, I am starting to believe that Donald Trump will, in fact, end up in those orange jumpsuits, maybe in one of those minimum security prisons. But the guy is a criminal, the guy is a terrorist, the guy is a treasonous, the guy is all those different things. He had attempted a coup on the United States of America. And anyone who's attempted a coup belongs exactly there, in jail. And I think that is where Donald Trump will end up within the next two years. Southwest Airlines went in shambles. They've been told for years that their system was antiquated and because they didn't use a, a wheel and spoke or, 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 or what is it, a hub and spoke system, because they didn't do that, it made recovery from these types of storms much more difficult. They had a lot of money, but they gave all the money to the shareholders and the executives. They decided it was shareholders over customers and you know what that's capitalism for you so let's go ahead and play this and then we'll go ahead and take it on the other side some of the morning's opinion pages tackle the Southwest story. Let's start with the Washington Post. Its editorial board says, Southwest put investors ahead of its customers and employees. Writing in part this, what's particularly egregious is the fact that Southwest had the money to upgrade systems, but chose to hand it to the shareholders instead. The airline recently announced it would pay a dividend again that amounts to $428 million a year. Southwest also received more than $7 billion from the U.S. federal government to shore up its operations during the pandemic. It paid a quarterly dividend for years before the coronavirus struck, signaling to Wall Street that the airline had cash to spare. In other words, given a choice, Southwest put its investors ahead of its customers and crew. Its logo was in the shape of a heart, and its stock symbol is love, L-U-V. All of that, as well as Southwest's bottom line, has now been put at risk by its leadership's short-sighted decisions to ignore needed investments while tending to investors. The editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, on the other hand, is warning against federal involvement. 
It writes in part, the scheduling meltdown at Southwest Airlines is one for the business record books, and the carrier will pay a price for months or years in damaged reputation. The only worse result for seating passengers would be to put Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg in charge. Democrats care less about stranded passengers than they do about gaining more federal control over the airline industry. Washington receded from airline management in the 1970s, and the ensuing competition opened air travel to the masses. Politicians love to kick an industry when it's down, but passengers can take their market revenge on Southwest without political help that will make air travel worse and more expensive. So we've got some dueling viewpoints there. Let's bring in the co-anchor of CNBC Squawk Box, Aaron Ross Sorkin, to weigh in. So Andrew, talk to us about what you're hearing about Southwest. What's next in terms of oversight or, as that, as I put it, passenger revenge? Well, look, I, I would just start with this. We keep talking about Southwest as if this is a Southwest-specific problem, and it is in this instance. But I think there's a larger issue, which is to say, you look at the deregulation, which the Wall Street Journal mentioned in that editorial that you were just reading from over the last you know, 30, 40 plus years, not only was the industry deregulated, there was remarkable consolidation that took place. And that has uh, created this almost oligopoly, uh, in certain cases, monopoly kind of power that has led to incentives, or in this case, disincentives for companies like Southwest, which used to compete on price and used to compete on brand, but so much of that competition has withered away because there hasn't been that type of competition in years. So many of the slotting systems at airlines across at airports across the country country are controlled by airlines so that there isn't that type of competition which would force a Southwest or others to invest in these type of things. You know, you look at what's happening in Europe. They're, they have created a bill of rights uh, where, you know, if you're a consumer and your flight is delayed or get, gets canceled, they pay a hefty penalty. But at the same time, there's competition uh, in that marketplace that has forced those airlines to actually try uh, to help those customers in a way that they haven't in the United States. So we can blame the airlines themselves and, and they deserve a lot of that blame. But we also have to, I think, look at the larger system. And as we start talking talking about Bill of Rights and all sorts of other things, you have to also take into uh, consideration the competition uh, perspective. Otherwise, what we're going to do is actually just raise prices across the board because these costs are not going to just be borne by shareholders. They will get caught. They'll be borne by customers. He nailed it. it. The government has to intervene. The government has to create regulations like they have in Europe where there is a a, a traveler's bill of rights, a customer bill of rights. But above and beyond that, competition has to be open to take away the price and power that these guys have to monopolize on markets. If you notice, the Wall Street Journal came out right away. Uh, they, they're scared. The government may intervene. The government may actually try to help the American people. And we don't want that. So Pete Buttigieg, stay in your lane. And then we have the sycophants who are going to say, yeah, you know, we don't want the government in there. You know, the sycophants, are, we don't want the government in there. Uh, you're going to. What can I say, folks? Like I said, there are some people who we can help and there are simply some we cannot. Dana Bass asked Adam Kinzinger if knowing what he knows today, if he could go back. Would he do anything differently? Would he continue to go up against his own party, against his own, uh, his then president, and do exactly what he is doing right now, which is the right thing for a change? I'm, I'm not a, a Kensinger fan or anything. He's too darn conservative, and I think in many ways too inconsistent in, in what, what their, their belief system. But he had no regrets. I want you to check out how he answered that, and then we'll take it on the other side. And could go back a couple of years and tell the congressman, Adam Kinzinger, of, um, I don't know, the just the 2020 election, uh, what you would be doing for the two years following. Would you say, yeah, go for it? Would you have done anything differently? I, you know, it's, it's a great question because I get asked that a lot. Like, you know, would you have done it differently? Obviously, there's, there's been some sacrifice and everything in it. I wouldn't do one thing differently. Look, I, you know... The way this has kind of gone in the last couple of years, it's been tough, right? You know, I've had, 
extended family that sent me letters telling me I was working on behalf of Satan. I mean, that's not something I could have imagined. You had imagined. members of your family saying yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, and it's not, nothing I could have imagined, you know, a couple of years ago. But what that does to me is it reminds me of just how bad of a place we've gotten to. And, you know, everybody in their life, and I was no different when I was a young guy, you know, you always imagine a moment where you can stand alone and where you're like the one person that, that can do the right thing in a crowd, right? Everybody imagines this moment. Very few people get a chance to actually do that. And I've learned in this job that very few of those that get the chance actually do it. Um, I feel honored to have been at this moment in history and to have done the right thing. You know, my kids are going to be proud of it. That's something that I take very seriously. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't have done anything different. Look, like I said, I am not a fan of Adam Kinzinger, but Adam Kinzinger, like uh, uh, Liz Cheney, he's a patriot. And the reason I said he's a patriot, he's putting himself at pretty good risk, even if he has ulterior motives to do what he's doing right now. And I think uh, we should cheer him on for it. He's going to be a pariah in a large part of the Republican Party going forward. In fact, he's probably given up a lot of possibilities that he would have had otherwise. So, you know, for those who don't like him, for those who love despising him, I say, hold your horses. He was one who helped do the right thing for the country. Tulsi Gubbard and how she really clocked George Santos, the representative from New York, who lied just about everything about his resume. I don't even know if people know who, where this guy came from. For all you know, this guy could have dropped in from Mars because we haven't a clue who this guy is. He has lied and told everything about himself that isn't true. But you know what? That means that the people of that district did not vote, did not vote for that guy. So let's go ahead and play that, and then we'll take it on the other side. Republican House leadership is still silent over what, if anything, they will do about, you know who, Congressman-elect George Santos, the incoming lawmaker, admitted earlier this week to deliberately lying about several key details of his background, including education, work history, and even personal life. That's all, just all of it. But even without a word from leadership, many on the right are calling for a response themselves. The Republican Jewish coalition slams Santos. In a statement, the group's CEO writes this, he deceived us and misrepresented his heritage. In public comments and to us personally, he previously claimed to be Jewish. Fellow Republican New York Congressman-elect veteran Nick LaLota responded on the, to the controversy on Twitter, writing, as a Navy man who campaigned on restoring accountability and integrity to our government, I believe a full investigation by the House Ethics Committee and, if necessary, law enforcement is required. The Nassau County Republican the committee chair said in a statement that he is deeply disappointed in Mr. Santos and expected more than just a blanket apology. The damage that his lies have caused to many people, especially those who have been impacted by the Holocaust, are profound. However, he stopped short of calling for Santos to resign. But Trump advisor Jason Miller went all the way. In a social media post, he simply wrote this, get rid of this loser. Santos appeared on Fox News yesterday in an interview with Phil and host former Democratic Congressman Tulsi Gabbard, who repeatedly called him out for his lies. What does the word integrity mean to you? Well, Tulsi, thank you for having me. You know, um, to, to answer your question, integrity is very important. And like I, I said to the New York Post, embellishing what, what does it mean, though? What does it mean? Because the, the meaning of well, the word actually matters in practice. Of course, it means to, to carry yourself in an honorable way. And I made a mistake. And I think humans are flawed and we all make mistakes, Tulsi. The thing is, Congressman-elect, uh, integrity means, yes, carrying yourself with honor, but it means it means telling the truth, being a person of integrity. Of and if I were one of those in New York's third district right now, now that the election is over and I'm finding out all of these lies that you've told, not just one little lie or one little embellishment, these are blatant lies 
lies. My question is, do you have no shame? Do you have no shame in the people who are now you're asking to trust you to go and be their voice for them, their families and their kids in Washington? Tulsi, I can say the same thing about the Democrats and, and the party. Look at Joe Biden. Joe Biden has been lying to the American people for 40 years. He is the president of the United States. Democrats resoundly support him. Do they have no shame? Are you Jewish? We've got a letter that your campaign sent out earlier this year, which reads as follows. As a proud American Jew, I've been to Israel numerous times for educational, business, and leisurely trips. You said there in that letter that you are, quote, a proud American Jew. How do you how do you explain that? My heritage is Jewish. I've always identified as Jewish. I was raised a practicing Catholic. I think I've gone through this. Even I've not not being raised a practicing Jew. I've always joked with friends and circles, even with in the campaign. I'd say, guys, I'm Jewish. Remember, I was raised Catholic. So, look, I understand everybody wants to nitpick at me. I mean, to go ahead and say I am Jew dash ish, meaning Oh, I wanted to sound Jewish, but what can I say? I mean, it is shameful that the Republican leadership has not come out and spoken up against what this guy has done. And not only that, they should all call for him to give up his position and have a new election in that district. Yes, the Democrat will likely win that because it would have been proven that a modus operandi for the Republican Party is lying. And I don't say that like, uh, like a partisan. I say that because that's what they do. Here in Texas, they were lying about crime. They were lying about health care. They were lying about gun violence. They lie about everything because our media is on the take and never, never challenges them as they should. But it is the party that lies more than any party that has ever existed in my lifetime and likely in the lifetime of this country. So, yes. Uh, Tulsi Gubbard, someone that I'm not fond of, did the right thing in the way she handled him. And as it turns out, since that interview, there's a hell of a lot more that has come out about this guy. This guy is probably going to make it on into Congress, but I don't know if he can stay there because he's likely going to be indicted on a whole lot of stuff. You know a party is in trouble when those who were always trying to defend the misdeeds of that party, when those who were always ready to defend all the pain this party inflicted on millions of Americans. You know, Charlie Sykes was no different than any other Republican pundit who was there defending Republican policies. And, you know, anybody who knows anything about how an economy works knows that Republican policies damage everyone except the very wealthy and that they get a whole lot of votes in the past and they get somewhat enough votes now is simply based on the miseducation of many of us. Those are provable facts. Now, that many of them, like Charlie Sykes here, have turned around and really start describing the Republican Party for what it has become, the leadership for what it has become, uh, it tells you that the descent into the abyss that has occurred within this party is now creating a clear and present danger for society at large. These guys wouldn't come out. I mean, after all, don't forget, they still support basic Republican conservative policies, policies we know harm people. But, you know, it doesn't put the republic in dire straits as quickly as what these current list of sycophants are doing. And I'm not just talking about the 20 guys <coughs> who are no longer supporting or who don't support McCarthy. I am talking about McCarthy and the entire clan. Again, they are going to be inconsequential with regards to any policy going forward because they won't get passed. But here's the danger. 
Well, I tell you what, let's listen to what Charlie Sykes had to say, and then we'll talk about the dangers thereafter. We now have an actual press release from this man saying he's been sworn in. On what planet are we currently living on? Like, seriously, what's going on? Well, I mean, think about it. This is a guy that lies about when his uh, mother died. So he's pretty much capable of of everything. He didn't embellish his resume. He just made everything up. But, you know, he is serving an interesting function in this caucus right now because you have Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, well, you know, I, I'm not as much of a line grifter as Matt Gates, And Matt Gates can look over at uh, Santos and say, well, hey, I'm not as crazy and, a you know, a line grifter as as that guy, you know, he, you know, in a caucus that you know is filled with with cranks and, you know, and um, and, you know, and, and losers, you know, Santos really does stand alone. But in so many ways. He's a personification of this age of grift that we live in, the personification of the of of the era of of Trump, somebody who is you know, completely fictitious, a chronic liar and someone with absolutely no shame whatsoever. So uh, on, a, on an incredibly shambolic day, uh, his presence sitting alone and, and shunned at the back was was just sort of a cherry on top of uh, of this clown car to mix a, a metaphor rather badly. Oh, okay, but like we can't even joke about the clown car, Jen. Yeah. Because if anyone was caught telling lies like this in private industry, in school, you would be fired or you would be expelled. Is this not just another terrible example of how public trust in our government will further erode? Yet. Yeah. Now, Charlie's right. I can't believe I'm agreeing with Charlie. I mean, yes, uh, somebody like Santos does serve a purpose because he is such he is such a degenerate that he makes the average degenerate in the party seem less degenerate than they really are. But these things have consequences. We have the debt ceiling debate that's coming up, coming up. And if Democrats are forced to, they may, they, to save not only the American economy, but to save the world's economy, based, given that it's based on our credit trustworthiness, uh, they may have to cut an, a, a negative deal, a deal that hurts many Americans to get the debt ceiling passed. Or we're going to have to get a president, Biden, that thinks outside of the box. And I don't know that President Biden is the type that will think outside of this box that he's lived and created in his entire life. I mean, they're going to have to do certain things like take executive power and say to hell with Congress, I will not allow the country to fail with the debt ceiling, etc. Yes, they got a lot passed to mitigate the two years that's gone, where nothing is going to get done. But there are still things that need to be done, why they should have busted the filibuster in December to get the debt ceiling passed. If only for the debt ceiling, they should have bust that filibuster to get it done, but they didn't. Again, Democrats are learning to be a bit more assertive than they normally are, but they have a long way to go. If the shoe were on the other foot, McConnell, knowing that he's going to be with a Congress that doesn't share his beliefs, values, or he won't be able to turn, would have done exactly what he did with the Supreme Court, changed the rules to satisfy his immediate wants. We need to learn that. I hope in the long run, Democrats learn that. Right now, it's too late for the debt ceiling. So we'll see what happens. We'll see if sensible Republicans join Democrats to ensure that we just get a clean Debt ceiling bill pass. After all, we know who the Republican Party is. We know the Republican Party is defined by George Santos. Cruelty versus competence. Today, uh, Mike Barnacle on MSNBC had a prescient statement that I think everybody needs to listen to. I mean, it, it encapsulates the difference between what Biden is doing and what the Republican Party leadership is pushing. Check this out, and then we'll take it on the other side. Police, a uh, little truth in packaging here. I know the president. I like the president. 
That is a very significant list of accomplishments that were just listed by you and Jonathan. And I think right now the principal goal of the Biden administration is to survive the onslaught of uh, investigations and counterattacks from the incoming Republican majority. But at the end of the day, he does all of this. He gets all of this done in addition, in addition to holding together a coalition fighting Russia in Ukraine. That, that's, those are two incredible accomplishments by the President of the United States. And, and figure out this thing. On the other side of the aisle, and we just referred to it, one of the potentially leading Republican candidates perhaps for President of the United States, the existing governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, who once presided over true incompetence in Texas and allowed the power grid to fail during the course of a very cold winter a few years ago, his idea of achievement is to bus people to, to Washington, D.C. in freezing weather and risk their lives standing outside the vice president's home, uh, the vice presidential mansion on, on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, D.C. That, that's what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about cruelty versus competence. The Republican proven cruelty and the president's proven competence. So, folks, again, again. It is cruelty versus competence, cruelty versus competence. And it is difficult as hell when you have a party whose base tenets is based on cruelty. When it comes to not giving health care to those who need health care, health care that's already paid for, cruelty. When it comes to not giving, the, uh, giving to mothers and fathers, the ability to have family leave so that they can get a job that pays them well. Cruelty. When it comes to not being able to have just family leave so that if something goes on in your family, you know that you've, you haven't lost your job or you know that you will be able to be held whole. Cruelty. We can go policy after policy after policy, which Republicans stand against. Student loans. Forgiveness of student loans after the banking industry has pilfered them decade after decade. Cruelty. So let's be clear here. The, the, the things that progressives, the things that even Democrats in general want to do for our American people, for American brethren, from all of our American brothers and sisters, are things that show competence things that show humanity. The policies generally supported by the Republican leadership, and in that regards then by Republicans, given that they, uh, as, we, as I've spoken about, psychopaths have a tendency to be followed. The things that they support is born in cruelty. The way they handle the immigration crisis, cruelty. I mean, you just, the way they take, talk about women being able to have control of their own bodies when things are not the way that they should be, cruelty. The way they handle voting rights and who can vote and when you can vote, cruelty. So uh, that theme, cruelty versus competence, is prescient. And I wish more of us would remember to use it in that context. Cruelty versus competent humanity. The oil companies are at it again. You know, they want you to believe that they are into green energy now. So they're going to invest money into doing things that create renewable energies doing all different types of green, etc. Well, guess what? The dirty little secret is out. No, that's not what they're doing. I want you to listen to Rokana and this interview as far as misinformation. These guys still intend to pull as much out of the, of the earth as they can. They are going to burn the earth up because most of them that are making a killing right now know that they won't be around when all the cleanup is necessary. Folks, this is mean, this is evil, but this is what they do. Check this out, we'll take it on the other side. On alleged misinformation, not political misinformation, but what Democrats in Congress say is a deliberate push by big oil and gas companies to mislead people about what they're doing on the climate crisis, basically greenwashing. 
That's in this new report just out from House Oversight Committee Democrats, which says Shell, Chevron, BP, American Petroleum Institute, all made big investments protecting fossil fuels for years to come. With accusations, those companies only paid lip service to investments in renewable energy while raking in record profits. They also say industry leaders refused to comply with the committee's subpoenas. NBC News has reached out to those companies for comment on specifics here. No response yet. But in the past, the head of Chevron, for example, has said any suggestion they're engaged in an effort to spread disinformation or mislead the public is wrong. No Republican signed on to this report. And the committee's top GOP member has slammed the Democrats' investigation as an attempt to deliver partisan theater for primetime news. I sat down with House Oversight Committee member Congressman Ro Khanna before that report dropped. Here's part of our conversation. Talk to me about what you think is the most important thing people should know about your findings. Hallie, we can't solve the climate crisis if we don't solve the climate misinformation crisis. And these hearings, two years where we had the big oil CEOs testifying for the first time in front of Congress, exposed that big oil has been misleading the American public. They lied for decades about climate change, that they denied that human activity caused it. And now they're misleading people, calling themselves green companies, saying they're going to hit the Paris Accords. But as you pointed out, they have very little actual investment going into clean technology, very little actual investment going into climate. People often think of the word misinformation and they think about what we've talked about so often over the last several years, which is political misinformation, misinformation and disinformation as it relates to election related matters. This is different. Hallie, it is. I mean, think if the oil companies had told the truth to the American people in the 1970s. They had the best scientists in the world. They knew what was going on. They made a decision not to tell us that. And that's why we have the situation we do today, where we're almost at 1.5 degrees of global warming, the level which scientists say is unacceptable, which is why we have such high gas prices, because we didn't diversify our economy. And then you'd think they'd wake up and they'd say, okay, we're going to change course. But instead, they continue to mislead. They are actually increasing their carbon emissions. Internal documents show that they believe that this is a license to continue the status quo, to entrench the fossil fuel industry while claiming something totally different. These companies have pushed back on um, some of the claims that that are reflected here in this final report, um, including, you know, Chevron, Exxon, et cetera. The companies essentially say, hey, we are advocating for responsible climate change investment. We are doing that. Well, I'm sure they're talking about it because they know it's good PR. But as the documents show, they're working to have lobbyists kill climate legislation. They can't have it both ways. They can't call themselves clean companies and then commit to business plans to increase CO2 emission. What was the most shocking thing to you? It was the culture in these oil companies. So these companies have a culture of intimidation and bullying, uh, and that's what's got to change. Do you think this report realistically could help change that culture? I think it sets the foundation. We're going to be referring the report to other agencies, which we'll announce uh, soon. Uh, but it's going to take more work. It's going to take mobilization. It's going to take people more than a House subcommittee with more resources looking into the millions of documents. We haven't had the resources to look into all the documents or get all the documents. But I think it's this first step in telling the story of what these companies have been doing. It sounds like there is an acknowledgement that this is about as far as the House can go, considering the shift in power next Congress with this. Do you feel like you're handing off the ball now to the Senate and to the White House? And what do you want to see them do with it? Well, I do think that they uh, there are a lot of documents. There's a lot of evidence that they could act on. Uh, we will be doing whatever we can in the next few weeks to help make that possible. Uh, and we're still in conversations. And so I, I don't want to make more news on on the program. But suffice it, to say, <laughs> suffice it to say that uh, this isn't the end and that the House is going to be working with all the okay. evidence for, for a body that has more, resor- more resources to continue the work. How do you respond to the uh, the criticism that this, uh, the work that has been done to create this ultimate final report is simply, let's say, partisan or has been politicized? 
it has been candidly uh, Democrats doing it because the Republicans didn't want to participate. I mean, from the day one when the big oil hearings happened, uh, every Republican gave a tribute uh, to the big oil executives. They didn't want to ask the tough questions. And so if you only have one side that uh, acknowledges that climate change is a real issue, it is unfortunately partisan. Uh, but ultimately, I think what, what matters are facts. And this report lays out the facts. Uh, and the facts are that the big oil companies have continued to mislead the American public. Now, tell me if that makes any sense. Tell me if it makes any sense for we, for us as American citizens to allow an, 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 a, corpora a corporatocracy of this sort to exist. They are using our own natural resources to hurt us. Why do we allow this? We have the power to do several things. We have the power to nationalize the oil industry, keep all the engineers and everybody else that makes good money, keep them at those high salaries to do the good work that they're doing right now. But nationalize it, get rid of the executives and the shareholders, pay them out, and then going forward, let it be what it needs to be, what it should be. It's a fundamental natural resource. And as a fundamental natural resource, it shouldn't be in the hands of the plutocracy. It shouldn't be in the hands of those who are simply there to make a buck on what should belong to us all. I hope you enjoyed that. Folks, please do remember to support our program. Go to politicsdoneright.com support. Again, Go to politicsdoneright.com support and find all the different ways in which you can help us be the, be the program that we must be in order to ensure that we keep the country we have, that we improve the country we have. We do that by, having us, by supporting many progressive outlets like here and others as well. So please go to politicsdoneright.com support or politicsandright.com slash PayPal. Provide however you can to make sure we can stay doing our books, our programs, etc., to ensure the progressive message has a great hearing and throughput into society. Thank you so kindly. You have a great rest of your day. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.